Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Nathan. And I'm Daenerys, and today we're sitting down with Gabby Calvacaresi. Calvacaresi is a poet, essayist, and professor. Their recent works include The Last Time I Saw Amelia Earhart, Apocalyptic Swing, a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize, and Rocket Fantastic, winner of the Audre Lorde Award for Lesbian Poetry. Calva Caressi is an editor-at-large at Los Angeles Review of Books and poetry editor at Southern Cultures. In 2011, they were a visiting writer at CMC. Gabby currently teaches at UNC Chapel Hill and lives in Old East Durham, North Carolina. Thank you Hi. so much for joining us, Gabby. I'm already messing it up. Oh, I'm no, fired. No. I'm fired. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hello, hello. Oh my gosh. Hi from Durham. Sort of fun that we can do this. So this is my office, although I'm about to turn and show you my couch. And then I don't know if this is even visually recorded or if it's like just audio. Just audio. Just audio. So there's no point. I'm going to say that I was going to show you all my orange couch, my office. Anyway, it's great to be here together. Although I remember how gorgeous Claremont McKenna College was. I used to sit, when I gave my um, talk and reading, I said I used to like stare into that big glass box in the middle of the campus with all those comfortable chairs. Mm. Evan. Yeah, I remember when you um, when you were talking um, and give, reciting your poems, you had this one poem that you said was really inspired by a beautiful sunny day and you were looking at Mount Baldy. And I remember just being thrown directly back to CMC. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in Claremont right now. So I loved that poem. The sun got all over everything. Yeah, I mean, I thank you, by the way. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I just remember so clearly, you know, the, that feeling of driving from Los Angeles to Claremont and just you would see the mountain. And it, I, I don't know, there were, I, I didn't grow up in California. I grew up in New England and then I lived in New York for a long time. And I lived in the Bay Area for a while, which was so beautiful. Um, nothing had prepared me in my New England life for Southern California. And so just like those, I don't, do you all have that? Like, there, I, I never stop having those moments when I'm in Los Angeles or in the Bay Area where like, it's just so beautiful. And that was one of those moments, just like, oh my gosh, no matter how terrible life can be. And I mean, as we know, particularly, I mean, today, another, another horrible, you know, event, um, Adam Toledo and the body camera um, video that's come out. Um, you know, in the in the midst of these terrible, terrible times, there are still these extraordinarily beautiful things that happen. And and at that time in my life, there was a lot of stuff like that going on. Yeah, Claremont, gorgeous. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with that. It's definitely very beautiful out here, especially since I'm from Dallas. Uh, we don't really have any mountains or anything over there. Um, but talking about um, beauty in some way and um, just like, everything around you. I, I'd like to start by uh, going back to your formative years. Um, so are there any defining moments or experiences that you had growing up that changed the way you view the world? Sure, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there, there were a number and I will say like for anyone who's listening, um, I'll just say like a little content warning. Like I probably, because I'm talking about formative parts of my life, I, I will talk about mental illness and, and maybe suicidal suicide and suicidal ideation. So just so you can think about that, like if you're like, you know what, I love this podcast so much, but I'm going to turn this one off. But um, you know, 
so I, I think that probably one of the most formative parts of my life, and I think it's probably true of a lot of people, is um, I was born into a family where my mother really struggled with mental illness um, to an extent that I, uh, from when I was six months old, uh, I went to live with my grandparents. And they were, of course, older and they were wonderful people, but they weren't like super athletic or anything like that. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on my own um, or even with them, but just like sitting while they were doing other things. And um, so I really, from like day one, I was a huge daydreamer. I just, I was in my head a lot and I was, I guess I was lonely, but I was in some ways also not lonely because I had this whole world I was constructing of, you know, things that were, that I was sort of making up, but that were very, very real to me, which is something I kind of do for a living now. Um, I would say that the other formative part of that was that, you know, my mom was very ill um, for my childhood. I did not see her very often because she was institutionalized for much of that time. And I grew up just in like a really waspy family and we didn't talk about it. And I think that that's, I often say like, I'm a, I'm a queer non-binary lesbian. There's all kinds of closets that I have been in, but in some ways the deepest closet was the closet of my mother's illness because, and this may ring true to people who are listening, it was just this enormous silence. And then when I was 13, she took her life and that was still silence. I mean, I didn't, I went, I was sent to school the next day. And so I think that um, while I could talk about like amazing teachers I've had and those were, that was really important and like workshops I've gone to. And um, I think probably the really formative thing was both being in a space where I was kind of constantly already in my imaginative life and making up worlds and then having this thing that kind of defied language that, that people wouldn't talk to me about and trying to make sense of it and, and feeling it around me all the time. I don't know if that makes sense. And I sometimes make no sense. So if I don't feel free to tell me, but I think that that was uh that was a big, big thing for me. And then when, after my mother took her life, you know, I remember it wasn't until I got to college at Sarah Lawrence that I told anybody about that. So again, thinking about closets, I was out um, as a lesbian by that point, but I was really in the closet about, um, about suicide. And so writing poems was a way that even before I understood that's what I was doing, I was trying to make meaning of that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I wanted to ask you what you think the American experience is um, and mm -hmm. why people consider your work to be distinctively American. I think it's really interesting. I love that question, Daenerys. Thank you so much. People don't ask that. I mean, I feel like that's a question that people will talk about me as like an American author. Like, what does that mean? Um, but won't necessarily ask me about that. So I think there's like a surface right? Like with everything, there's the surface. So I think a lot of people will say, particularly because of my first book, like, oh, you're a uniquely American author. What does that even mean? As we know, like, um, but it's a phrase that's used a lot. Um, so we can look at like certain books of mine. And I guess on the surface, you can say, well, right, I write about small towns and I write about pastoral settings that kind of seem American in some way that we might've seen in a movie. Um, I write a lot about, um, you know, American sports. I write about bands and Los Angeles and jazz. And so a lot of experiences that we might think of as quintessentially American. But I think the thing that 
the, the part of that I don't resist is that I, I think that my work is, um, well, would I say deeply American? I would also say it's highly puritanical. I mean, it, I, I grew up in a puritanical tradition. You know, I grew up in a colonial white tradition. And so I think as such, I my work has a lot to do with power and my work has a lot to do with um, what happens to people when certain systems, be it in their homes or in their government or in their jobs or just like in their day-to-day -day life, like walking out into the world, when certain systems try and, and push against them and knock them down and um, make them less in some way. Because that was something that happened a lot in my life. While at the same time, like in this white body that I am in, um, I have also been trained to be part of that system that keeps people down. And so I would say that, um, well, people might look at my work and say, oh, it's American because of this. I think the thing that probably feels American to them has a lot more to do with power and um, injustice and how that's worked through. Yeah, and those are all really insightful, great thoughts about it. Um, I, I really didn't consider some of that stuff before. Um, thinking about like my own experience growing up in Dallas, I've never been able to leave the country. And um, I think we all see um, the American experience as a different thing. And uh, the way you described it is just distinctly beautiful, I have to say. Um, and kind of as a follow-up to that, um, we've talked a bit about your past and how you've um, developed your poems in your mind in some way. So I, I just would have to ask, when you write your poems, how much do you work from memory and how much do you work from imagination? I feel like this is so such a great question. Um, and one of the questions, because I, I uh, you know, I don't know if you all, have this experience. Are you all daydreamers? Were you daydreamers growing up? And are you still? Yeah, 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 totally. So I will say, first of all, the answer to that question, Nathan, is yes for both, because I spent a significant part of my life not really knowing the difference between like my daydreams and what was going on in the world. I mean, I particularly as it pertained to things like I was very obsessed with soap operas. I was very obsessed with the movies. My family owned um, second run theaters and, and drive-in movie theaters. Um, I had and still have a profound relationship to television. Um, and so because of that, I think like I was imagining things, I was watching imagined things all the time. Um, and so memory, and I was also someone, and I think this is also probably true of people who are listening. I was also someone who was having things happen to me that when I recounted them to people, like I remember this happening to me in my home, I would be told that it didn't happen. Um, and and particularly as it related to my body and as it related to you know my safety. And so um, I would say that I am someone who still to this day like works from what I call memory, but that I'm also like really, really aware that memory is a really porous thing. And it's something that actually also like, it's interesting when we talk about freedom, right? We say, well, everybody has a right to their memory, but that's not true. Like people's, you know, we see this all the time right now. People's memory of events are constantly called into question. People's memories of what, have ha what has happened to them. So I think I do work from memory, but I think I also always open to the fact of, um, what imagined life is within that space and how, how also I was someone who um, 
as I was living my life in order to stay alive, I, I always had to imagine another kind of reality for myself. And I think my poems do that. I think my poems are consistently also trying to imagine another reality. Yeah, I, I love that answer about imagination and about, I think you mentioned this a little in that answer, but in your ath talk, you also talked about imagining your own body kind of as that coping mechanism. And yeah. I know that's definitely something that I do myself, not necessarily in a good way. So I'm wondering how would you encourage people to imagine their body in a way that aligns with um, recent like body positivity and or body neutrality movements combined of body positivity being, oh, you have to accept your body no matter like what it is and body neutrality kind of focusing more on don't focus so much on what your body looks like, but rather what it can do for you. I think that's a great question, Daenerys. And of course, what I want to do is ask you all a million questions, but I know that's like not what I'm allowed to do. But I just want to say like, I would love, how fun would it be to be sitting in that glass building, like on campus, having a cup of tea, talking about this stuff? Um, maybe we will someday. You know, I think the first thing I would say, and then I say this to, to students and I just, I say this to myself all the time is, um, for me, the first rule for myself, and maybe it's the only rule for myself when I think about um, how, how to be positive within myself, not even about my, but like my idea of my body is to resist any efforts by anyone to legislate the way I think about my body or the way I talk about my body, right? Because I think sometimes the things that we do um, that we think are really helpful for people, like I think about, I, I love, I, when I start a class now, will ask people their pronouns, but I also will always say, if you don't want to share your pronouns, you also don't have to, because I know for myself, for instance, there was a period of time well, for me to sort of have to do that, to have to like claim a, a certain pronoun would have been really scary for me and felt like really damaging. And I would have been embarrassed and I would have been all of these kinds of things. That's one of those impulses that we go into the classroom as professors, like asking students for their pronouns because we think like that's a really positive thing to do. And it is in a lot of ways, but sometimes even that kind of care can end up causing real damage for someone who's really like going through that. So. I think the first answer to that is um, I try on any given day, both with myself and with people around me to be just um, to meet myself and others where they are with their bodies. Like there are some days, because I also have physical, I have a balance disorder. I have a, a visual disability called nystagmus. So I have lots of stuff going on in my body. Um, I have to recognize that on any given day, like what I am capable of doing physically and how I feel about that and, and like what my body looks like to myself and others and how I feel about that is really, really fluid. And, um, and so I think that all of these movements that I have benefited from and been a part of have also, I have to say at times been movements that have been really um, felt very restricting to me or they've felt very like, well, I'm not, I actually, I really do feel like not comfortable in my body today. And I, I want to be able to talk about that. Um, so I think that, I don't know if that's really an answer, but, but I think for myself, the, the way I live within those spaces and how that works into imagined life is just to try and always imagine myself safe because a lot of times I'm not. And, um, 
and to just like think about everyone around me and think like okay like let's just let's just all meet each other where we where we're at that's like such a you guys are asking you folks are asking like the most philosophical like amazing questions what a podcast this is thank you we can thank our great cmc education for those deep thoughts and actually to speak about that um you were a uh, a visiting writer at cmc uh, would you care to share any of your experiences during that time or just anything um that you gained from uh, coming to cmc and, and teaching all of us oh my gosh and being taught by you i mean i've never stopped thinking about my time at cmc i really haven't i mean a it was just so beautiful and i was broke at the time i mean like i was i was really broke i was like the person you know like yeah that was a time where like groceries every week were hard for me, like figuring out how to eat and stuff like that. It was really a challenging time. And to get to like drive in my little Toyota Tercel to like this dream of a place felt um, where everyone was so welcoming. Like it felt, it felt really, it felt astonishing to me and like a gift. It came at a time in my life financially where like, I didn't know what I was doing. And that was incredibly helpful to me in terms of also my ability to think of myself as like someone who was going to keep writing and be able to like do that stuff. Cause I also, you know, people will say like, oh, you just write through everything. I don't know. Like, I think it's really hard when you're working for jobs and you know, I mean, people, it's interesting when we talk about people say like, well, this portion of the population just isn't interested in reading. And it's like, well, it's also true that like, if you have a, if you have, multiple jobs you're stressed about money all the time you can't put food on your table like there are a lot of things that are difficult to imagine doing and having time to do claremont mckenna like gave me a kind of time and space to both think of myself as like a teacher and a writer again and also you all the students did i mean i just remember the quality of the conversation was so incredible um it was fall term and the last you all ended, I think, right around Thanksgiving or like a, a little bit, maybe I forget what the timing was, but I remember very clearly we had this thanks, this class right before Thanksgiving. And what all the class was, was that we made an imaginary feast and that everybody in the room just like said what they were bringing. And we slowly like let this feast build over the course of like, you know, 50 minutes or something like that. And I just remember thinking about the deep intelligence and, and generosity of the students at Claremont McKenna, the incredible creativity. Like I have to say, you can edit this out if you want to, but I had been told for instance, that the Claremont McKenna students were not as creative as the students at like Pomona or Scripps or like this or that. And that was crazy to me. Like, I mean, I I shouldn't say the word crazy, but that was, I found that to be the opposite of true. Like I, I and maybe, you know, but I just found you all to be so open and so, like really interested in creative writing, really interested in, in working and also having these other kinds of interests, like being interested in economics, being interested in global health, being interested in all these things. And so um, I, I thought about it as just like a really, really powerful time in my life. And there are like a couple schools I've taught at, I've taught a lot of places before I ended up deciding to go, go on the tenure track there are like a very small handful of schools that I think of as like the gold standard. And um, Claremont McKenna, I mean, I say this honest to goodness, um, it really is like Stanford is a kind of, where I taught was a kind of gold standard. Claremont McKenna was a kind of gold standard. There's like maybe one other um, where, you know, 
UNC Chapel Hill is, the students are extraordinary here. And one of the things I say to myself is like, oh, they remind me of the students at Claremont McKenna. They remind me of the students at Stanford. Um, I don't know. I, lo I loved my time. I, and I also loved like how all the colleges were so close to each other. There was, was a, there a coffee shop at Scripps I would go to? I was, like, it was great. The Motley. I mean, I was just so also like to get at, I, mean, I was really sad. I have to say um, the pandemic is sad in so many ways, but I was really sad not to get to come back to campus because I was like, oh, I'm going to have the whole thing. I'm going to go to the coffee shop. I'm going to roam about, you know, come back like, you know, this like, but um, but even so, I have found online in every experience I've had with you all just it's the exact same thing. Like in a way, it's like I never left. It's just you all continue to be incredibly awesome and warm and um in really difficult circumstances. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I I know that I resonate with a lot about what you said about other CMCers. Like I think that's why CMC appeals so much to me because we're such an amazing community. Like I truly believe that about other students and other faculty. And you mentioned that CMC, your time at CMC, um, you were able to think about writing and teaching more. So we wanted to know how you tie your identity, maybe as a teacher and a writer, maybe also as like a lesbian. Um, how do you tie all those things together into your poetry? And do you think you do that intentionally? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely, or I try to. I mean, on any given day, there can be dumpster fires all day long, um, and I make mistakes all day long. Um, you know, I really do. I mean, it's such a complicated idea, but I, I do think of myself as a citizen. Um, I do think of myself and like, I don't know about a citizen of the United States so much as like, I mean, although I am like, I think, I think of myself as a, a, a just kind of being like a citizen of the world and a citizen like with other citizens in the classroom. And when I say citizen, I don't mean in terms of documentation and things like, that. I mean, that's a really messed up word. It's ended up being this really like messed up idea, but in sort of its oldest sense, in my poems and in the classroom and when I'm out in the world, I just think of us as kind of in it together and that this, the, the, whatever we're making, whether it's the classroom experience, whether it's my poems, whether it's me talking about, you know, poems, it, it's so much about the way in which I'm interacting with others and listening to others and, um, and opening myself to be listened to and, and sometimes pushing back, sometimes resisting, um, but also like being open, you know, being open to being disagreed with that's, that's been an incredibly important thing for me as a teacher is, is because students, like if you let them are your greatest teachers. And, and, and one of the things, and this is like at Claremont, this was an, ex, you know, an example. Um, there's just a million ways in which you all know more than me about lots of things. And if I go into, you know, the classroom and I, ref and I'm like, I know everything about everything. I refuse to learn from you then it, like that hurts me as a human, as a teacher and as a citizen. It's also true that like, as I'm learning from you, those things are gonna end up, um, they, they end up influencing my poems, right? Um, I said this in, in the Athenaeum talk, but it's true. Like there were many, many years where I didn't have a friend in the world. And I was not someone who didn't wanna have friends. Like I always wanted to communicate. I always wanted to like be talking to someone and, and and I wanted someone to talk to me and I didn't necessarily 
like imagine we would always agree, but I definitely wanted to be in conversation. And so I think that may be the kind of over, an overarching thing in my all aspects of my life is how far can I open myself in such a way? Because I think when I open myself, other people open themselves around me. And then we are so much bigger in terms of what we're emitting than all these other forces that want to close us all down. Because I do think there are a lot of forces. I mean, even when we think about this really complicated word citizen now, like it meant one thing, then it becomes another thing that's meant to oppress, you know? We can resist that. For sure. And um, maybe to speak about that a bit as well, um, so many forces actually are trying to weigh us down. Um, given the pandemic, I think we've all been facing um, greater loneliness because we haven't been able to interact as much socially in person. Um, things like Zoom are still better than nothing, but it, you kind of miss um, like in-person interactions as well. So maybe to talk about that, I actually saw a tweet you had a few days ago. Um, I'll just go ahead and read it now. You said, uh, sometimes you go down the Stevie Nicks, Lindsay Buckingham YouTube rabbit hole, and that's the afternoon. And I'm not sure if that's part of your self-care oh. practice or not, um, just going down like rabbit holes. I, I know I do that quite a lot. Um, but I, I think I just want to ask, uh, given the heightened stress of current life, do you have a self-care practice that is either new or old that you incorporate into your daily routine? Absolutely. I mean, the Stevie Nicks rabbit hole is always a source of incredible renewal for anyone. And talk about LA. Anybody listening to this podcast who has not listened, Google on YouTube or YouTube Stevie Nicks Wild Heart and everything's gonna change for you. Like everything's gonna change for you. It's so good. Um, anyway, I, I, I think I, I do have self-care practices, although it's interesting how as the pandemic has worn on like many people, I think I have, uh, those have become diminished. And it's interesting how I think many of us had a kind of, um, even like with strong meditative practices, like I, I, you know, I would say meditation is something that's really important to me. I think there's a kind of fatigue that has happened now where at least for me, it's become very difficult to keep doing these things that are really supposedly healthy for me. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was walking every day and I was like, you know, exercising and eating the right food and meditating. And, you know, at some point it was like, oh my gosh, my life is like donuts and television and like, you know, lying on the floor. So, um, so I, I think that the, the self-care practices that have been most important to me and continue to be are, for me, it's meditation. I think that prayer does that for a lot of people, you know, a, a, a gratitude practice for myself that tries to, I wrote a poem, I read a poem about this that tries to imagine like all the people around me, myself, my friends, but also like people I don't know or people I've just met. Like tonight, I'll say both of your names and I'll imagine you like, just having the best day and like being healthy and I'll imagine your families and your friends doing that. And like, that'll just become, and then you'll just be in it forever. Like that'll just be Nate, you know, you'll be these people who I'm consistently. Um, I feel like that's really, really a, a great practice. And um, I know that there's all kinds of like loving kindness meditations. And I think those are great to follow, but I think you can also make your own, like you can also figure out for you. And I've done that, like what works for me? What are the phrases that work for me? So that's a practice. Cooking 
is something that really matters to me. Um, just like being with my partner, hanging out, like watching television, going for walks. Um, and I think, you know, as, as, um, as the world is starting to open up a little bit, I think trying to be gentle with myself, because one thing I'm aware of is as much as I'm excited, there's just like this world of understanding and, and really opening to like seeing like, oh my God, like what have we been through? You know, I see it with my students. I mean, just, just the fatigue and, and the awareness, of it, particularly my seniors. Are either of you seniors? Yeah, I mean, like watching my seniors and it's been a year and a half of their college life. I mean, um, so trying to be gentle is a self-care practice, both with myself and with my students. Like today in class, we just ended up talking for an hour. Like we just ended up like people read poems they liked and we ended up, you know, and, and that was what needed to happen because it's like, I think we've all learned at this point that a, a civic a significant, you know, there are a lot of forces that aren't gonna take care of us. And so we take care of us. Um, and that's been a self-care practice for me too is, oh, right, we take care of us. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I hope that some of our listeners take inspiration from that. I definitely will. Um, but unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. So thank you so much, Gabby, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. It's been the best, you all. I can't wait to see you sometime in the glass house. <laughs> <laughs>